You're listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCrary, your host, and I'm also the team leader for Adult Explore the Bible team. And today I'm being joined by David Briscoe. He's the content editor for the Adult Explore the Bible Commentary. And we're going to be looking at session 11 for the fall 2020 study of Isaiah. And this is going to be an examination of Isaiah 53 verses 1 through 12. David, thank you for being with us today. This is your fourth time to be with us this, uh, during this quarter. So thank you for giving us that much time. I appreciate it tremendously. Oh, it's a pleasure. Absolutely. These are the, the four points of the outline that we're going to be using. Number one is despised. Number two is substitute. Number three is willing. And number four is sacrificed. In verses one through three, we have the idea of despised. Here, Isaiah described the Lord's servant as one who would be despised and rejected. In verses four through six, we see the idea of substitute. Isaiah characterized the Lord's servant as being stricken, pierced, and crushed, taking on God's judgment for our sin. In verses 7 through 9, we see the idea of willing. Isaiah portrayed the Lord's servant as taking on our judgment willingly, like a lamb being led to a slaughter. The servant was richer in death than in life, having lived a sinless life. The last section, verses 10 through 12, is entitled Sacrificed. In these verses, Isaiah described the Lord's servant as a guilt offering made on behalf of the people. As a result of the sacrifice, many will be justified. David, in the middle of all this, I mean, this is a passage that if you're going to look at Isaiah, you have to pick, you know, maybe the most important chapter in the whole book. This may be it. I don't know, but I, I, I would know. think this would be, this would be the one I would put on top of that list. And behind all of this is the idea uh, of substitutionary atonement. Why is that an important concept? And just help us understand this idea of substitutionary atonement. So, you know, it's, it's two words, substitutionary atonement. Atonement is the, is the key word. It's the noun. Substitutionary is an adjective that's uh, modifying that. So let's just look at, look at those two words and, and look at atonement first. Now, maybe you've heard the, uh, the brief little explanation of the meaning of atonement as being, uh, and really just pronounced in a different way, at-one-ment. Mm -hmm. But there's a, a benefit to, to that because it, it underscores that the idea of atonement uh, is a relational term. It's uh, especially, it refers to the mending or restoring of a relationship that has been broken. And so the, uh, as you look back through uh, scripture, you find that, that concept, even when you might not necessarily find the word atonement, you find the concept of restoring a broken relationship, you know, really beginning uh, in Genesis and going all the way through uh, the, uh, the New Testament. But <clears throat> let's just think about this. It's in the uh, Holman Illustrated Bible Dictionary, uh, the article on atonement begins in this way. The biblical concept of atonement cannot be understood except in the context of the wrath of God against sin. And, and so there's the relational aspect of that, uh, the wrath of God, the anger of God, uh, the 
uh, rejection of God against human sin. And that's how the relationship between God and man gets broken. It's because we sin and our relationship with uh, our creator is broken. So the concept, uh, not the word, but the concept itself is introduced as early as Genesis 3. And, and so we're familiar. Genesis 3 is the uh, chapter where we're told about the, the fall uh, of Adam and Eve into sin and, and the beginning of human sin uh, that really has cursed all humanity since then and will until, um, until the Lord comes again. And so the idea uh, in Genesis 3 uh, where uh, the uh, relationship is broken and is in need then of a mending, of a restoring. A little bit later in Genesis 9, we have, this is after the flood. Uh, Noah and his family have been saved from that flood. And so in Genesis 9, uh, the Lord gives this instruction that I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. In other words, if someone takes your lifeblood, I'll require a penalty. He goes on to say, I'll require it from any animal and from any human. There will be a cost, a consequence. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. And so here's the principle, whoever sheds human blood, by humans, his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. So there in that passage, you have the seed of what might be called a, a guilt offering. In other words, a payment, something that has to be paid or offered uh, in order to assuage this guilt or to mend this broken relationship. That passage again is, I want to make sure we got it. Genesis 9, 5, and 6. Genesis then, 9, 5, and 6. Okay. Right. Uh, still in Genesis, if you go forward a little bit to Genesis 22, here's this beautiful picture uh, where you have the seed of substitution that's entered in. Not the word necessarily, but the concept. So Genesis 22 is about where uh, Abraham finally has this beloved son, Isaac, this only son, Isaac. And God instructs Abraham to take his only beloved son, Isaac, uh, to, uh, excuse me, I shouldn't say his only son, but his beloved son, the covenant son. <laughs> he, did, he did have Ishmael. His promised but, son. That's right, the promised son. Uh, and so, but he was to take this promised son to Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. So you have this picture of Abraham and his young son walking with him. And so they're, they're arriving at Mount Moriah, and Isaac asks his father this question. He says, Dad, and I'm paraphrasing here, Dad, we, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, where's, where's the lamb? Can you imagine how Abraham felt hearing that question? Where's the lamb? And his answer there begins to tell us something about his understanding of God. Because Abraham says to Isaac, son, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. So you have in that 
answer, the, the seed of what later becomes the substitute. In other words, God's going to give something. God's going to provide something that will be the guilt offering, the sacrifice offering, when we get there to the place of sacrifice. Now, a little further, Exodus uh, 25, this is in the time of Moses, and in particular, you have uh, the instructions concerning the tabernacle, and you, you get the instruction related to the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat that sits atop the Ark of the Covenant. And in Exodus 25, verses 21 to 22, uh, it's described, that mercy seat is described and, and the Lord says, I'll meet with you there above the mercy seat. Now, mercy seat, mercy is the, the whole idea of that part of the uh, worship apparatus, the, the Ark of the Covenant. God's going to have mercy. Well, mercy on what? Mercy because of the Israelites' sinfulness. And that comes out clear in Leviticus 16, where we do have the word appearing, the word atonement, and you have this day, this one day of the year called the Day of Atonement, where you have this huge sacrificial ritual where the high priest and the high priest alone is going to be able to go into the Holy of Holies, where that mercy seat is, and he's going to uh, put the blood of a sacrifice uh, on that mercy seat as a sign of seeking the forgiveness of God for the people's sins. And here's what the Lord says about that in Levit Leviticus 16.30. Atonement will be made for you on this day to cleanse you, and you'll be clean from all your sins before the Lord. This is to be a permanent statute for you to make atonement for the Israelites once a year because of all their sins. And that last verse is verse 34. Okay. 16. So let me, let me then fast forward to Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 14, because it brings all of those Old Testament pictures of atonement into, uh, into view uh, in relation to Jesus Christ. So here's, here's what the writer in Hebrews 9, verses 11, 14, 11 to 14 said, but Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not once a year, but once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can uh, love the living God? Uh, so Isaiah, <laughs> just hundreds, centuries before the time of the New Testament, foresaw that there was going to be a need for an atonement sacrifice that was vastly greater than the animal sacrifices offered once a year in the temple. In fact, if you keep in mind the background of Isaiah 53, that this is 
This is projected to a people who would be living in exile and the temple in Jerusalem would still be lying in ruins. It was destroyed. There were no sacrifices being offered in the temple uh, for the people to whom Isaiah 53 uh, was, 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 was recorded, was written. So Isaiah was foreseeing that there's going to come a time when the blood of the animal sacrifices it's not going to do it. it. It's going to be, it's going to need something else. And so he was looking toward a time when an individual, this one he calls the servant of the Lord, was going to be offered. So they, and, the, the people he was talking to, once they were in exile, they would have been thinking, we've got to get back to Jerusalem, build a temple so we can uh, offer sacrifices for our sin. But Isaiah was looking well beyond that is, you, you, you're, you've missed the focus. The focus is you don't need that temple because there's a servant who's going to die in your place, uh, pay that sacrifice and be that atonement and settle it for all. And, and it makes the temple no longer, uh, I won't say necessary, but uh, needed it, it for our, the end. That was, that was not the end purpose. But yeah. the, the temple itself was, was really a picture of what was to come. And that's where the writer of Hebrews uh, takes that. He says, well, you know, in its time, the temple with the animal sacrifices, that, that had its place, but it was all pointing toward the, uh, the greater sacrifice. And so, you know, this is, this is what Isaiah foresaw, particularly in, in chapter 53, verse 10, where he writes, yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely, meaning the servant, when you make him a guilt offering, there it is. That's the atonement offering. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days. And by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. Now, very, very quickly, uh, the word substitutionary then refers to something being done in my place or in our place. And so this is where in Isaiah 53 verses four through six, you know, it just couldn't be said any clearer because this servant who is going to be crushed, who's going to be treated uh, so severely and indeed will, uh, as, as we know from the New Testament, is going to be crucified and buried uh, and be raised again. Well, Isaiah foresaw that that servant Jesus Christ would bear our sicknesses. He would carry our pains. He would be pierced because of our rebellion. He would be crushed because of our iniquities. Punished, his punishment would be our peace. And he says, we all went astray like sheep. We've turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So that's, that's the substitute. And it carries me back to that to that uh, saying of Abraham to his son Isaac, I just I can't imagine the, uh, the 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 passion and the intimacy of that answer as he gave, where where Isaac asked, "Well, where's the lamb?" And Abraham said, "The Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering," and that's what he did ultimately in the servant, the suffering servant, Jesus Christ the Lord himself provided the guilt offering, the lamb for the burnt offering, 
Obviously, we as believers understand Isaiah 53 in terms of being fulfilled in Christ and pointing to his death, burial, and resurrection. But how do other people, let's say Jewish scholars, for example, how do they understand uh, this particular passage in light of the rejection of, of Christ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those, those Jews who do not see uh, Jesus as the Messiah that God had promised, who, who do not uh, use the New Testament and, and the truth that is there and, and interpreting, understanding what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53. They, they generally see, uh, because there's an earlier servant song, and by the way, there are, there are four of these recognizable uh, so-called servant songs. That yeah, we, we looked at one of them last week. We looked uh, last week. We looked at uh, chapter forty-nine, which is right. the fourth of those songs, I think, isn't it? The second, second, 40, second, forty-two, forty-nine, chapter fifty, and then this chapter. 52. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Is the final. Uh, but in in chapter forty-nine, verse three, the one we a passage we looked at uh, in the previous session, uh, you, you have this passage. You have this uh, verse. He said to me, the Lord said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Jewish interpreters generally look at that and they say, oh, okay, so it's the people of Israel. It's the nation of Israel that is the servant throughout all of the um, uh, servant songs. And so uh, it looks at the covenant nation and... Uh, even in, in chapter 53 that we're looking at in this session, they, they would see, even though it's very clear that the servant is an individual who is taking suffering as a, um, in place of, as a substitute for others. Uh, Jewish interpretation would, would generally see that as a collective idea, that, that the one the individual is really a picture of the collective nation, Israel, that continues to face uh, suffering and diasporas, um, you know, where they're scattered here and there uh, throughout the world in exile or, or wherever. And, and so that's the kind of suffering that the, the nation Israel continues to, to face. Uh, the New Testament clearly shows that Isaiah 53 was, was not talking about the nation collectively. It was talking about the individual. Uh, as it turns out, Jesus Christ, the son of God. You mentioned pack item 13. Uh, that's a handout that's in the leader pack. And it looks at Isaiah 53 uh, and, and it notes uh, places where it's quoted in the New Testament. Not every verse of Isaiah 53 is quoted, but almost every verse is. You could almost piece together Isaiah 53 uh, from just the New Testament. Um, you find it uh, in multiple places, find different mentions of it. You find uh, in the accounts, the gospel accounts of the crucifixion, you find some references there. It's what the Ethiopian eunuch is reading um, when uh, Philip approaches him in Acts. Uh, so th- there are multiple places where uh, it's mentioned in the New Testament. An idea for using that pack item may be for you to distribute the pack item, provide copies to everybody, and then just walk through it. Note how that uh, how Isaiah 53 is used in the New Testament. Uh, as David mentioned, there is no question that the 
that the New Testament writers understood Jesus to be the suffering servant and not Israel in this, in this context. And so it does help give us a tool to help us be reminded of, um, uh, of how we can interpret uh, Isaiah 53 in light of the New Testament, uh, as opposed to us thinking about it being Israel or some other uh, person or group of people, because uh, the words, the, the idea of servant is used to define uh, different people in the book of Isaiah. And so we would want to, to help them, help, the, help our group understand that in this particular passage, there's no question that the New Testament writers understood this to be the Messiah, to be Christ, uh, to be Jesus himself. Uh, David, any other key insights that you would point out from Isaiah 53? Let, let me, let me uh, point out to one of those passages that a uh, part of it at least is, is on the uh, pack item 13. Uh, just is so ironic because you, you ask about how Jewish thought might look at the servant. But here's a case in which, particularly in regard to uh, Isaiah 53, 7, which says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep silent before his shearers. He did not open his mouth. And, and so he was, the, the servant suffers not because of his own sins, but for the sins of others. So in, in John chapter 11, there's some verses there that just really give us uh, how some Jewish leaders uh, were interpreting this passage really as the New Testament does, but yet refused to act on it. So in John 11, verse 47 says, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin were saying, what are we going to do since this man, speaking of Jesus, is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, there's the real issue for the Jewish leaders <laughs> of Jesus today. So one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, high priest, said to them, you know nothing at all. You're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. And he goes on to say, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill Jesus kill him, meaning to kill Jesus. So it's, it's just so ironic that here you have a Jewish scholar, Caiaphas, interpreting Isaiah 53 in a way that, you know, he, he said... We wouldn't have a problem with the way he interpreted it. would not have a problem. But his greater issue was, if we don't do something, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. So there, there's where the interpretation got skewed and they didn't act on the correct interpretation of Isaiah 53 that they, uh, that Caiaphas actually voiced. And instead they, uh, they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. 
Well, David, thank you for being with us today. Let me just remind you from time to time in this podcast, we mentioned different resources in the Explore the Bible family. Like today, we mentioned the Leader Pack. David edits the adult commentary. We also have a quick source and a few other resources. Some of these are available in print and some are digital and some both. You can find out more about the Explore the Bible resources on our website at goexplorethebible.com. There's no spaces in that. Just goexplorethebible.com and you can find out more about these resources and how you can purchase them. Thank you for listening to us this week and we hope you'll join us again next week as we look at session 12 and it's a study of Isaiah 58.